when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Summer holidays for some Britons were back on this week as the government announced it would ease travel to several destinations and make life better for those who are double jabbed. I'd say to anybody, of course, traveling for any reason at the moment during this pandemic, um, do make sure you can rebook your flights, do make sure you've got travel insurance in in place, uh, and uh, we have to approach this cautiously. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the latest changes to travelling in the time of COVID, as you heard from Transport Secretary Grand Chaps at the top. What is the thinking behind the government's strategy, and is travel really going to be that easy this summer? I'll be discussing the coronavirus latest with our political editor, George Parker, and political correspondent, Jasmine cameron Shalesi. And later, we'll be looking at the five-year anniversary of the Brexit referendum, Has it panned out as we expected? And how has it reshaped British politics, the economy and the parties? Chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will debate, along with Anad Menon, director of the UK in the Changing Europe think tank. George and Jasmine, welcome back. So we've had all this travel news this week. And of course, it's not just about holidays. It's about families reuniting. But I think after the last six months people have had, it's all been about where and what can we go? And George, what I want to know for you is, has this changed any of your summer holiday plans? Well, to be honest, Seb, um, I was feeling quite smug about uh, three weeks ago because I'd booked in advance a holiday in the Azores, which is, you know, is a Portuguese archipelago out in the middle of the Atlantic and uh, all preparing to go. And then three weeks ago, Boris Johnson took Portugal off the green list. So I've already had one holiday cancelled. So I think probably I'll be playing a bit careful over the next few weeks and um, probably looking forward to a, a few days down in Devon. And what about you, Jasmine? I was one of those very fortunate people who managed to get to Portugal for, I think, that one week where it was on the green list. Um, And I think very smugly did a Twitter thread with my sage advice on how to travel only for Portugal to be taken off the green list about a few days later, which shows you should never really trust anything I say. What are your plans for the summer? Well, very unexcitingly, I have zero plans to leave the country. I think I'd sort of mentally decided that I wasn't going to go abroad until 2022, really. I just sort of thought, let me err on the side of caution. And I was worried about booking something and it getting cancelled. So very unexcitingly, I'll be staying in Devon for my summer holidays. Nothing wrong with Devon. And that sounds like a very safe and good solution to do. Well, let's move on to the main topic of the week. The UK's third wave of coronavirus is very different to the first and second. Yes, infections are rising quickly again, but hospital numbers crucially aren't following them. That's thanks to the success of the vaccination programme. But even though normal life is very much returned to normal in some respect, international travel remains difficult. This week, the Johnson government announced that it would be easier to go to more places, including Malta and the Balearic Islands. But it may become easier to go later elsewhere in the summer too for those who are double jabbed. Grand Chaps told this to Sky News this week. 
we see that there is a case for double vaccination, fully vaccinated, meaning that you perhaps don't have to quarantine. So we can take those countries in the amber list and uh, allow people to come back without having to do the quarantine that you'd have to do for amber. But not yet, partly because, of course, not everybody has been offered a vaccine uh, yet. George, let's begin with the overall picture of coronavirus, because, of course, this was meant to be the week when all the restrictions fell away on June the 21st. But the Johnson government put in that delay due to the Delta variant of coronavirus, the one that originated in India. So we're still in step three and social distancing is still in place. But the picture seems to be relatively positive. Certainly the mood music coming from Boris Johnson down in the government is that things are looking positive. And as you mentioned, it's that sort of break between the number of cases, which, as you say, have been rising, and the number of hospitalizations and deaths, and uh, the clear evidence that the, the vaccination strategy is working, particularly for those people who've received two jabs. And you know, it was really done through gritted teeth, wasn't it, that the government decided not to press ahead with step four on June the 21st and to delay everything until uh, July the 19th, probably. There's a review point coming up quite soon, but I think everyone's looking at July the 19th as the key day now, the so-called Freedom Day, when restrictions drop away. And if you listen to the rhetoric coming from government, they really do see this as what Boris Johnson called a terminus date, where all the restrictions will finally be lifted. And it was quite interesting, actually, this week to hear George Eustace, an environment minister, talking about the fact, with some confidence, in fact, we'll be able to throw away our masks, that wearing masks will be optional, and that he, for one, wouldn't be wearing a mask. And that gives you a very clear indication of the way the government's thinking about this in a very bullish sort of way. But as we've seen, you know, the virus has a habit of of mutating, of new variants emerging, and we can't, you know, guarantee anything, I think, at this stage. Well, Jasmine, we know that the vaccination programme continues to go very well, and we passed the milestone this week of 60% of adults being double jabbed. We don't actually know the level the government wants to get to before things open up again in July, but you assume it's going to be getting as many over 40s as possible, as well as over 50s in the clinically vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we've heard some really positive news when it comes to the vaccination programme this week. We know that uptake among 18 to 24-year-olds has been incredibly high. We know that there's a high percentage of the population that's getting double jabbed. So I think there is increasing confidence that when it comes to July the 19th, by the time we get to that point, there'll be a large chunk of the population that actually has had both jabs and we'll be in a significantly better position than we would have been if we opened up in, in June 21st. Now, George, let's look at what was announced on travel this week. So obviously we've got this traffic light system with countries in the green, the amber and the red list. Red list means hotel quarantine and the government really doesn't want you to go there. Amber means you're advised not to go, but you can. And you have to home quarantine for 10 days with a test to release after five days. And green are the only places you really can go to. And unlike the last time they reviewed this, the government did put a whole lot of other countries onto the green list. Why was that? Well, basically, the government does want to um, reopen travel and they want to do it cautiously. But there has been concerns that up until now, at least, uh, some other countries were more risky to visit than staying at home, basically. According to many Europeans, of course, that situation is now starting to inverse and you're starting to see more cases of the Delta variant here. Certainly, a certain number of countries were added to the green list before. Portugal was then removed three weeks ago. And this time, this week, they've added 16 new uh, countries or territories to the green list, which, as you say, means you can return home from these countries without quarantining. You still have to carry out tests when you return home. But confusingly, for some people, I think, at least in the travel industry, most of those new countries added to the green list have been put on something called the green watch list, which means that the government could 
revoke their green status at very short notice, throwing people's holiday plans into chaos. So I think lots of people will look at this and think, well, hang on a sec. You know, if at any at the drop of the hat, as with Portugal, the government can reverse this at very short notice, am I taking too much of a risk? I think that's one of been, been one of the main criticisms of the travel industry that there's still quite a bit of confusion and uncertainty around this. But Jasmine, one thing they are trying to bring is that little bit more certainty for those who are double vaccinated. And the government announced this week that at some point later in the summer, and oddly, they couldn't actually decide a date to do this, which makes you think there's been a bit of a Whitehall Barney over this, that those who are double jabbed will be able to use their certification through the NHS app to not have to quarantine at home. You still have to do test on the second day but really if that does go ahead and we assume that will be later July some point in August then things could get a lot easier and we've known that vaccine certification has been coming for foreign travel for some time but this is finally confirmation of it which really could be a game changer. Yeah I think so and it definitely makes sense in principle and I think there's a growing understanding that the existing coronavirus rules that we've all got used to say for example wearing masks having to self-isolate well those also have to shift once people are double vaccinated and I think as more and more people are vaccinated I think people will be less inclined to accept limitations on where they can travel how many people they can see but I still think there's a huge fear within government that a new imported variant from abroad will be able to evade the vaccines and will push the UK's progress in tackling the virus backwards and so naturally the government has actually been quite vague on this on you know on when this policy will actually be implemented which isn't massively helpful for the travel sector because obviously they want to get people booked in holidays for June July and August but at the moment a lot of that feels quite up in the air. And I think naturally there's a bit of frustration within the travel sector of how policy over international travel has been communicated and how you know there have been suggestions that ministers are saying stay at home this summer, but then we got the traffic light list, which means that people can travel abroad. So it's all a bit ambiguous. And I think the rise of the Delta variant basically exemplifies what happens when a variant comes in from abroad and how destabilising it can be. And of course, it's not just up to us, George. One of the things we have seen again this week is that the UK has eased some destinations, but others have closed the doors. And you've seen that Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, has actually urged EU countries to have travel bans with the UK because of the prominence of the Delta variant. And we know that the Delta variant will be everywhere eventually. There's no doubt about that. But Europe is trying to do what the UK should have done, which is to vaccinate as many people as possible. But based on our reporting, not many other countries are going along with what Germany has suggested. No, that's right. And it's been a topic of discussion at the European Council in Brussels uh, this week. And Angela Merkel has been saying that she wants the EU to adopt a common travel policy and basically to follow the example of Germany, which is requiring putting imposing very tough restrictions on Brits travelling to Germany. But in not very diplomatic terms, Spain in particular has said, no way. Uh, Spain is desperate for British tourists, as we know, to go over there. They say that they are welcoming British tourists with open arms um, now that some parts of Spain, like the Balearic Islands, have been put on the green list. And there's no way that they will accede to what Germany's been asking for. And it's important to note that you know it, it is under European Union rules for each individual country to decide its own policy in this area. So despite Angela Merkel's pleading, I think we're still going to see a very much a patchwork of responses by EU member states, with most of them, I think, opening their doors to UK citizens. I think one thing point you made there in your question, Seb, was about the fact we'll see the Delta variant probably popping up very soon in much greater numbers across the continent of Europe. So we could end up in a, situa- a situation where just as the British government's putting countries onto the green list, we see the Delta variant popping up and possibly having to take them off again pretty in pretty short order. 
So when you look at all that, Jasmine, obviously it's going to be a very difficult period in terms of travel. There's no doubt about it. But in terms of the UK's general fight, it does seem to be in a pretty good place. And the people I've spoken to this week seem to think that the final easing of restrictions on July is going to go ahead. And as George mentioned at the beginning, we heard from the Environment Secretary, George Eustace, who said that he would be throwing away his mask when all the restrictions ended. It does seem the mood music in Westminster has been towards that that final step four visa will take place um, at the on July the 19th. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And, and although the government hasn't openly said it, ultimately, if, if, you know, if we want more domestic freedom, so for example, if we don't want limits on social gatherings, if we don't want to wear face masks anymore, that at the moment is, you know, you have to compromise and that means slightly tighter border restrictions and instability in the travel sector. But in terms of what's happening on a domestic level, things are looking relatively positive. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll be moving to a space where it's up to personal choice, for example, whether to wear face masks and, you know, do certain things in, you know, public transport and in offices. So, yeah, I think we're moving towards a, a positive direction. And I think the government's hoping that if it opens up come summer, where we know that there's going to be a slight spike in infections, hopefully come winter, when the NHS will be under strains from things like flu and influenza, hopefully it means that the NHS will be able to cope because there's been, you know, we've seen the impact of lifting restrictions in the summer and it means the NHS can, you know, can hopefully won't be overwhelmed later down the line. And what's your feeling, George, about how normal things are going to get back to after this? Because as you've mentioned, there are certain Conservatives who want to get rid of face masks and want everything to go back just as it was. And we know that Boris Johnson is very eager to get people back into offices and spending in city centres again. But it's hard to know if the population is going to follow him on those lines. Yeah, I think that Boris Johnson's instincts are to remove all the legal restrictions on July the 19th and then leave it to people's discretion how they continue to live their lives. But I don't think we'll see anything like a return to 2019 normality for months or maybe even years to come. I think we'll still see people wearing masks on public transport, whether they're required by law to do that or not. And I still think we'll see offices largely empty, certainly through to the autumn until the end of the school summer holidays. And even then, you know, as we've discussed many times before, I'm sure we'll see completely different working patterns for people with far fewer people commuting into to offices. So yes, legal restrictions might be lifted on July the 19th, and that's certainly the government's hope. But I don't think it will be anything like normality as we used to know it. George and Jasmine, thank you very much. It's been five years this week since the BBC's David Dimbleby was on our TV screens and he announced the country the result of a referendum. Well, at 20 minutes to five, we can now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed by this referendum uh, to leave the EU. The British people have spoken and the answer is we're out. Yes, can you believe it? It's been five years since the UK voted to leave the EU and six months since it fully left the bloc's single market and customs union. That result, which few expected back in 2016, continues to have reverberations and ultimately still defines politics today. Well, Robert Shrimsley, great to have you back on the pod as always. Let's cast your mind back to 2016 and that night. And I think we were both in the FT newsroom. Did you expect it? And has it turned out how you thought it would? I didn't expect the Brexit vote. I mean, even up to the end, I thought Remain would probably, like Nigel Farage, I guess, I thought Remain would probably nick it. And I don't think one could say anybody could have predicted the way things played out over the following five years. But I think my overwhelming sense on that day, and remember, it was also a day that the Prime Minister fell as well, so it was an extraordinary day, was... 
rather like that scene at the end of the film The Candidate, you know, where Robert Redford finally got himself elected and he turns to his campaign manager and he says, well, what, what now? What do we do now? And you had this sense that the country had taken a momentous, nation-changing decision, but that nobody actually knew what it meant. And in those early days, the sense that Brexit was up for grabs as to how it could be defined and what it would mean and how it would be shaped. And I think but from the moment that David Cameron walked out, it was in the hands of the Brexiters. So although it would be absurd to say that I predicted how the next five years would play out, I think looking back now, it probably has gone almost the way that it was inevitably going to go because the momentum was going to keep building for a more clean Brexit, a more severe rupture. And so as we saw in the way that other ideas, the Theresa May plans, talk of a cousin, everyone was saying, well, that's not Brexit. I think that momentum was going to happen. And so we probably ended up where we were likely to end up from the moment that David Cameron walked. Well, Anand Menon, it's an absolute delight to have you onto Payne's politics for the first time. Do you agree with Robert that this was the inevitable way it was going to go? Because, of course, as we've seen over the past five years, various quotes have been pulled out from what Nigel Farage talked about staying in EFTA or various politicians saying we should have stayed in the single market and customs union. Yet here we are with a very hardline interpretation of what Brexit is, the UK fully out of the block with very few ties. And we've still yet to see the real consequences of that in terms of the economic and trading impacts. If I can sort of start my inaugural performance by disagreeing with Robert, I don't think it was inevitable. And I think there were a number of turning points over the last five years where things could have gone differently. I'm not going to bore your listeners by going through all of them, but just take that first month after the referendum. And I think two things happened then that were decisive in terms of how things turned out. Firstly, the Tory leadership election was won by a Remainer. And I think things could have gone very differently had Boris Johnson or Michael Gove won that leadership contest. Because I think, you know, you take the principle of only Nixon could go to China. A Brexiter would have found it easier, I think, to compromise and say, look, it was close. We should go for something that keeps us trading relatively freely with the European Union. And the second thing that was absolutely fundamental, I think, was Penny Morden dropping out of the Tory leadership campaign. Because what that meant was we had a prime minister who never had to explain, let alone defend, her vision of what relations with the EU should look like after Brexit. I think if whoever it had been who'd won had had to go through that full process, had to lay out a plan for relations with the European Union, and had then got the backing of MPs and the party membership for that vision, again, I think that Prime Minister might have found it easier to tack to a slightly softer outcome than we eventually had. I understand the argument that Anand's making, but I think the point is, if one looks at the parliamentary arithmetic on this, the prime, whoever the Prime Minister was going to be didn't have the numbers to force their will upon their party. And with what we now know of Boris Johnson, I think he would have been, dra- if, if he had won the leadership, I think he would have been dragged along in a roughly similar direction. So, I mean, it is one of the great what-ifs. There were levers who were talking at the very start about having to compromise could have been so close. But I think what we saw over the years was probably what was going to happen because in the end, there wasn't a compromise. Brexit was a, a, a you know a, a black and white situation and you were either in or out in the minds of the levers. 
And I think the one of the what-ifs, though, Anan, is when you go back to what happened, obviously, in 2017, and I think that was the moment at which Brexit really started to disrupt the political system because you had that election, everybody expected Theresa May to win and to get a mandate for her vision of leaving the EU. She didn't, and there was that brief moment where there were negotiations between the Tories and Labour to do a cross-party Brexit deal. And I feel that... If Theresa May had been a slightly different character and Jeremy Corbyn too, there was a majority, in my view, in that parliament for a softer form of Brexit. Maybe it was staying in the customs union or some form of EFTA or EA, you name it. But the politics were never quite there. But if that had happened, we would be in a very different place now. I have to say that I'm less convinced about. I mean, firstly, Brexit started to interfere with our politics straight away. You had the leadership challenge to Jeremy Corbyn, sort of, you know, less than a year in as Labour leader. The the outcome of the referendum led directly to that challenge. So you had the Labour Party tearing itself apart immediately as a result of the referendum. But I just think the numbers don't quite stack up, Seb, to be honest, for, for what you're saying. Because I think had Theresa May come out of that failed election and immediately said to her party, right, I know, I'm going to do a deal with the Labour Party, I think you'd have seen a rebellion in the Conservative Party at that point, to be quite honest. Um, the one thing I would say, just reflecting on this a bit more, the one area where I think it didn't have to be as it turned out, and this perhaps does go to Anand's point about the fact that the Tories elected a Remainer rather than a Lever, is that Theresa May accepted the EU's definitions of what was going to happen, what were the negotiating parameters. They accepted the Irish argument on what had to happen with Northern Ireland and what defending the Good Friday Agreement meant. Now, one can quite reasonably say they were right, but nonetheless, the British accepted that from the outset. And I think it is just possible. I do have some sympathy with the argument that said, had you had the sort of maverick negotiating tactics that Boris Johnson used at the very end, you might have been able to change the parameters and it might have been a more encompassing trade deal when we got there. Though, on the other hand, one also has to accept that the EU still held all the cards, whoever was negotiating for Britain. And I think the one thing we have clearly learned, though, over the past five years is that the British state was not in the, the best mode of operating. When you looked at those negotiations and, and how it approached Brexit, you know, there weren't many strategic wins for the UK in terms of what it wanted. And if we think back to people like David Davis saying we would have all the cars, that was quite clearly exposed there. But it still feels to me at this point, nobody has actually been realistic about the trade-offs involved with Brexit. And we're still seeing the repercussions of the situation in Northern Ireland, particularly with the protocol that's causing massive trade disruption and disruption on the province as well. You know, do you think we will ever have a point at which there is clarity on what Brexit really means? Or will it always be in the interest of UK politicians just to fudge it a little? I think almost certainly not. You're absolutely right on trade-offs. Theresa May just refused to accept that any existed. David Frost hinted at them in his speech in Brussels in February 2020, but only hinted at them. And I think from now on, particularly given the coincidence of the economic impacts of the pandemic, it's not in the interest of the government to start saying, OK, this is what Brexit really meant. I also think you're absolutely right on the British state. And there's a couple of interesting things worth saying on that. I spoke to friends in member states and in the EU at the start of the Brexit process, and they were genuinely scared that this Rolls-Royce British administration 
must have had a plan and it was going to be a brilliant plan and it would blindside them. And they were sitting there in trepidation waiting for the British, who were such skillful negotiators in Brussels, to absolutely flummox them with the sophistication of their negotiating strategy. And of course, what we actually got, even, you know, within hours of the outcome, you know, that very morning, what did we have? We had a prime minister who resigned and ran, having forbidden his civil service to do any preparatory work. So that wasn't great. You had a leader of the opposition wandering over to College Green and saying quite nonchalantly, let's trigger Article 50 this morning. So you had a, just, just a colossal failure of political leadership within hours of the announcement of the results. The one, the other clear big impact, Robert, is how both political parties have been reshaped over the past five years. And the obvious one is the Conservatives, that it was led by Remainers, really. And now it's wholly the a Brexit party, that the majority of Conservative MPs are now Brexiters. The cabinet is sort of dominated by Brexiters. Now, it's the thing the Tory party does every so often. It just entirely reinvents itself when circumstances require it to. It was obviously a very painful process with 21 MPs getting kicked out the party, but it seems to found itself in a slightly more stable place than Labour, if you judge by the 2019 election result. Yes, I think that's right. I think in, in, in reality, the Conservative Party was always, had long been a Eurosceptic party, led by sort of pragmatic or realist leaders who saw the downsides. And, and so it had that division all the way through it. And what you now have is a party that is clear in its position, basically, and which represents the views of its members and its MPs. So that was made life simpler for them. The other thing, obviously, that Brexit did was it allowed the Conservatives a vehicle, and we've seen this in other countries too, and essentially a party that was essentially seen as the party of the better off. It allowed them a, a means to build a coalition with people who weren't well off, with people who were disadvantaged, with people who were working class, people who were, you know, in manufacturing jobs, and, in, and outside of, you know, the, the outside of London and the southeast, it gave them a nationalist dimension, which allowed them to build a new electoral coalition, which is what we now see. And it's a very powerful coalition. And when you add that also to um, their rejection of austerity, you have a, a high spending, big state, nationalistic party. And that is basically where the political centre of gravity is at the moment. And I think, Anand, if you look even in the next five years' time, when all the dust has settled and we can genuinely start to look at Brexit through the historical lens, there is an argument to be made that Labour will be far more damaged by the Brexit process because of the way it split its voting coalition. And what I think is the most remarkable thing about 2019 is the fact that Theresa May in 2017 and Boris Johnson in 2019 kept on to a lot of Conservative Remainers, whereas Labour obviously lost a huge amount of Labour Brexiters. That's absolutely true. And it's also worth pointing out that during the course of 2019, Labour also lost a load of Labour remainers. So they were squeezed from both sides. I think it's absolutely the case that Labour is far more vulnerable to values politics than the Conservatives. The flip side is, I think the current Conservative coalition is far more vulnerable to the traditional politics of left versus right than Labour is. So actually, one of the key questions about our politics is, what the battleground is going to be. If the battleground is footballers taking the knee, Brexit, immigration, statues, the Tories will remain cohesive. If it's levels of debt, levels of taxation, levels of state intervention, then actually that's far, far more uncomfortable for this particular Tory coalition. But can I just add one more thing? Which I just thought of it when Robert was talking about sort of Tory Euroscepticism over the years. There is a delicious irony about Tory Euroscepticism in the sense that it starts off post-Maastricht with a bunch of people raging against the levels of regulation imposed on the British state by Brussels. And opposition to the European Union was all about the need to get out so we could free ourselves of these regulations. 
When push came to shove, the Conservative Prime Minister who actually negotiated our exit almost walked away from the talks because the European Union was threatening to impose state aid controls that meant he couldn't be as interventionist in the economy as he wanted to be. He wanted to make us more like Germany by the end. And so the nature of Tory Euroscepticism has, has, has done a 180 degree turn that this is now, as Robert said, a Conservative Party on economic policy that is vastly different to the policies that those early Eurosceptics wanted to see. The question I think that we'll still be discussing and people really want to know the answer to is how long are we going to be shaped by that Remain-Leave divide? It's obviously faded a bit over the past two years since the 2019 election, but it feels to me as if it's still going to be a defining thing for many, many years to come. Do you think for the, the rest of your lifetime or my lifetime it will persist? People are shaped in their politics by a big defining issue and that affects them in lots of other ways too. So maybe the, the Remain Leave issue itself will, will, will fade. But the point is, people's politics have been shaped by who was on their side in that row. You know, I remember when I was growing up, one of the big issues was the Cold War and nuclear weapons. And depending on whether you were a unilateralist or a multilateralist, whether you looked at America as the enemy or Russia as the enemy, that pretty much defined the rest of your politics too. And I think that is one of the things that's going to happen here is, and obviously we, we don't know how Brexit in the end will play out, but assuming a neutral position for a moment, what will happen here is that people will be shaped by identifying with those they thought were on their side. And we saw one of the reasons why Boris Johnson's ratings stayed as strong as they were even through the worst moments of the pandemic is the people who were on his side stayed on his side. What I think we'll see is the people who were on the Remain side will continue to attract that support. And so the ramifications will go beyond the actual issue of Brexit to political identity because you will pick a side, you will have picked a side and you will probably stick with the people who were on your side. And that I think is, is the longer long-term one. Absolutely. I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, all those organisations that did long-term modelling, none of them have revisited their assumptions. Those assumptions that we're talking about a 4 to 5% hit over the medium term are still the forecasts about economic impact. But not only do you have the economic impact of COVID that hides those effects, you also have the fact that this is far more a slow puncture than a cliff edge. So the effects are going to be serious, they're going to be pretty significant, but they're going to hit us gradually over time. And in that sense, at least, they might not be as politically salient as some people thought they might be. Well, Robert and Dan, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd please ask you to subscribe. You can find it through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. You can also leave us a nice positive rating if you're having a happy weekend. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Sean McGarity. And until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.